Well, we are in the study of Jonah. We're in this in, in our third week, actually, in this study of Jonah, and we've been approaching it every week, looking for really to answer three questions: What does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about us? And then, how shall we respond at God's revelation of Himself? See, Jonah is one of the sixteen prophetic books of the Old Testament. God spoke through the prophets to reveal Himself, to reveal His purposes, and to reveal His His will and His work. And and Jonah is unique because he's not so much speaking about what God spoke, but we see Jonah's life still being used by God to reveal God. And so God's not, not, not revealing himself so much through his word, but, but through what he did. And so every week we're coming and we're looking at this big God story. This week, as we come to the, to the passage and come to the scripture, we will be looking to see God shine while Jonah hides. Jonah is really trying to work against God, and you'll see that play out. And God is going to shine regardless of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 1 of Jonah. We're going to begin reading in verse 7. While you're turning there, let me catch you up on the story. We're kind of jumping in in the middle, and I just want it fresh in your heads what's happened to this point. Jonah has been called by God to go and preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was a city that was evil, and God was going to extend mercy and grace to them and have Jonah preach. And if they repented, he was going to not bring judgment. And Jonah is like, sorry, God, i got other plans. I, I, I've got a different agenda. i got different desires. I'm going to go my own way. And, and in fact, in him going his own way, he wasn't just simply disobeying God's word and staying where he was at. He decided... I, I believe in not doing this so much, I'm going to run the other direction. So he goes to a city called Joppa, climbs on a boat to a place called Tarshish. And Tarshish, we don't really know exactly where that was at. Most uh, scholars think it was at the south end of Spain, uh, at the other end of the sea. And, and they believe, at least, that this was as far as the world went in the, in the perspective or in the eyes of that of that time, they, the, the people that lived in that time. They, that's as far as the world... So, so in Jonah's mind, it seems that he's going a, as far away from God as he could possibly go. And, and so he climbs to the bottom of this boat and he falls fast asleep. Now, shockingly, God was serious about his command to Jonah, right? I mean, he meant what he said. Imagine that. So, so he says to Jonah, go, and Jonah doesn't go. God's not just... Well, you know, it was a good idea, but I guess Jonah's right. He didn't need to go. No, God expected Jonah to obey, and God wasn't just going to let Jonah go. God actually cared too much for Jonah to let that happen, and he cared too much for the Ninevites to let that happen. And so somewhere along the way, we don't know when it happened or exactly how long they'd been at sea, but we know that God at some point, Jonah's in the, in the belly of the boat sleeping. The sailors are doing what they do. And God at some point hurls a storm at them, such a storm that the sailors who do this on a regular basis were scared to death. They, they were like, we're going to die. You know, they, they just assumed this was the end. So they start doing everything they can, everything in their power and control to try to save themselves. They start throwing cargo overboard. And in fact, the, the term they use is they, where, where God hurled a storm, they hurl cargo, right? So they're doing what they can, what's in their power, what's in their control. They start hurling cargo and they start getting on their knees, praying to their false gods. And they're doing everything they know to do in their power to save themselves. And, and at some point in the midst of the storm, the captain finds Jonah sleeping in the belly of the boat. <laughs> and I, so, so I just want you to get, I want you to imagine it, right? I mean, here this storm is raging that's got some people so scared to death that they think they're going to die. And Jonah is actually oblivious to it. 
This morning I, I woke up and I went up to the front of the house and I, I heard an alarm. It's my son's alarm. He's dead asleep. Cameron's dead asleep in his room. Alarm's just blaring. I'm like, wow, does he sleep through that? It actually happens every morning. It's not a unique occurrence. This is a daily normal thing for him. Just going off, it's like, I don't get it. But this is Jonah. The alarms are going off and Jonah's just fast asleep. Oblivious to what's going on. The captain wakes him up. Arise, you sleeper. You idiot. What are you doing sleeping? We're going to die. Call out to your God. And he points him back to his God. And call out to him. Maybe, just maybe, your God can do something. Ours are failing. Maybe yours can do something. So that's kind of where we're going to jump in as they then hold a meeting on deck in the middle of the storm. Verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they roll dice. Kind of, It's kind of like rolling dice, essentially. They're, they're, they're throwing these stones. One's, it's white on one side, black on the other side. There's usually two of them. And, and based on whether they turn up white or turn up black or turn up one of each, the, it, it tells them something. It sends them a message. It's kind of like the magic eight ball. You remember the magic eight ball? Do you want me to do this? Not enough information. So, so it, was an, it was an answer. So, so um, that, that's what they were doing. And essentially, ultimately, Jonah is outed. He's busted. The sailors know it's his fault. They get to cast blame on him. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And, what people are, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the, the, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that, they, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So, so in these two verses, in verses 9 and 10, we kind of see Jonah begin to explain to them what's going on and why they're in the midst of this storm. They, they are experiencing... Well, sorry. They are experiencing... or They're getting to hear kind of what this is all about. They know that there is is something else behind this storm. They know that it's, it's divine in origin, and that's why they're praying to their gods. They're, they're looking for any answer they can find. And in the midst of this, we see Jonah begin to give them a clue. Now, a lot of people think that Jonah didn't answer all their questions, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think there's a lot of things that Jonah said that we don't get clearly stated for us because they knew at some level that he told them that he was fleeing from them, but we don't see how he clearly stated that. So I think probably he gave them a synopsis. Well, I got a call from God and I disobeyed and I ran and I head in the bottom of your boat and now here we are. The storm is raging. I didn't even know and you had to wake me up and tell me about it. But I am a Hebrew. And so I, I, think, that, I think the reality is, is that part of his confession was an explanation of what he knew to be true and knew why these events were going on. But specifically, the author of this book of the Bible helps us see the confession. A confession, I, I think, that, that gives us some insight into this God, his prophet, and, and really what he's about doing, the pro, what, what this God's about doing. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And, and for me, as I, as I hear that, I, I hear fear. And, and, and because of the way we talk about fear, I, I, I immediately move and think about fear in terms of being afraid of something. Like I have a fear of spiders, right? And so I don't go near spiders. I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want them to have anything to do with me. I just as soon we stay 
distant, right? So, and, and they make me tremble a little bit. And, and it used to be, it used to be, not so bad anymore, it used to be that, that if I saw that I couldn't kill them, I couldn't do anything with them. Amy used to laugh at me for this, and I, I didn't ever think it was fair for her to do that, but, but she did. She'd laugh at me and, and call me names, and we, we'll talk about more of that later. But that's what happened. I had this fear of spiders. Well, well, that's not the kind of fear that, that we're seeing here. We're, in fact, most theologians say that, that this should be translated as worship, that this word from the Hebrew would, would also speak of a reverent fear, a respect for this God, a, a worship. And I think, I think the ESV got it right in translating it fear, but I think we still have to, I, I, I still think we have to approach it with this idea that Jonah's not just quaking in his boots over this God. If, if that was the case, then I don't think we would have ever seen him in this place. But, but I think that, that he does, in his mind, have this reverence and respect for God. But look at his life. It doesn't really seem to add up, does it? I mean, Jonah says, I fear the Lord. And, and whether it's reverent respect or whether it's quaking in your boots kind of fear, where is he? What's he doing? There's a, there's a disconnect between what he says and what he does. You see, I think what's happening here, what I, what I think we're able to begin to see is that, that Jonah is being brought face to face with this idol. This greater desire, this greater devotion, this greater desire, this, this greater and more important will, this greater and more important perspective, or perspective than God. See, I, I think Jonah is being brought face to face that he has a greater desire for his own will, for his own desires, for his own glory. Than God's. And in fact, I think, I really believe that it's at this point that we begin to see Jonah be turned back around. Because his actions are just about to change. Instead of being selfish and running and hiding, Jonah's about to do something very, very sacrificial. And let's just keep reading. Verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So, so Jonah, they, they see it. Jonah's admitted it. He's confessed it. He's been outed. He's, he's said, I'm here running from the Lord. And they're like, well, what do we do? Not only, not only are you our res- resident expert on what's happening to us now, not only are you the one that knows the answers to why we're here, but you also know the answers to the Lord who you are running from. These sailors probably had never really truly been introduced to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. They they probably had never truly and personally been introduced to the God who created the heavens and the earth and who rules over the sea and the land. They, They probably had never spent any time knowing who he was. And so Jonah just happens to be their resident expert. So they looked to him, what do we do then? And not just what do we do in this circumstance, what do we do with you? Right? What do we, what, what do, we do to you, as the ESV says? Like, are, are we supposed to give you 39 lashes now? Is that going to be enough? You know, are we supposed to get you back to dry ground? Or, you know, just tie you up to the mast and, and hope for the best? You know, what, what are we supposed to do? And he said to them, 
pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they would, they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It's pretty powerful and beautiful if you, if you ask me, if we stop just for a second and think about what just happened. That Jonah had been running. Jonah had been hiding. Jonah had been doing what he could to ensure that pagans didn't hear about God's judgment or God's mercy. That pagans didn't know of the glory of God. That pagans didn't experience his God. He had been doing what he could to ensure that, that, that his people, that, that he himself and his people were the only recipients of this truth. That's why he ran. That's why he hid in the bottom of a boat. That's why he was going as far away as he could. We'll deal with that more as we get to chapter 4. But here in the midst of this confrontation, being woken up, being woken up to the reality of God's power and God's presence and God's purpose, Jonah is brought face to face with what he loved most and called to repentance. And in response, he does something that he never intended to do. You see, he had run and hid and and tried to do everything he could to to not complete this mission. And here he is standing on a boat, not just preaching mercy, but offering mercy. Not just preaching about judgment, but recognizing that God's judgment may just fall on him. Not wanting to let a world see how good this God is and how glorious he is. But irregardless, he's standing there having to live under the glory of this God. And he does something that's totally opposite of what he's done to this point. And he says, sacrifice me. Give me up. Throw me into the sea. Now, the sailors, they didn't like that answer, of course. I mean, what would you do if somebody said to you, well, you've got to kill me and then God will be happy. I mean, that seems counterintuitive to us, right? I mean... It's not. Wait a minute. Really? Well, we, let, let's just get you back to dry land. At least then you're off our boat and God can do with you what he wants to do with you. And so they start rowing hard. And the, and the scripture actually says that they dug their rows, their rows, their oars in deeper. So, so like they're standing up going as deep as they could and they're just pulling on those oars and, and they're not making any headway. The storm just gets worse. Do, do you see where they're stuck? Do you see where they're at and why they're there? Jonah's sin had put them in a place where they were completely and utterly faced with the fact that they have no control, that they have no real power, that they have no real hope on their own. This isn't the point of the message, but I think it's something we've got to own here, and we've got to, we've got to deal with this. Our lives as God's people in this world radically affect the people around us. You see, Jonah, Jonah was loved by God. Jonah was used by God. Jonah was, was, was a part of God's plan. He's one of God's children. 
And in his sin, you see what happened? His storm didn't just rock his own world. But it was rocking the world of everybody around him. And we don't know this for certain, but, but I doubt that this sea was, was, was storming and raging just around this one little boat. You see, God took a wind and he hurled it across the sea and that tempest blew. How many other boats were being affected? You see, we don't even know how far the ripples go. Brothers and sisters, church family, children of God. I hope you'll hear today's message not because not, not because it's just about you, but because about it's it's about what happens to us and those around us in this world. You have circles of influence everywhere you go. You have people that you can reach or that can be reached through you. And you get to be a part of it or you'll be a passive recipient of it. But I think there's a lesson. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to react like Jonah? Set me aside. Sacrifice me. It's no longer about my goals. It's no longer about my desires. It's no longer about what I would have done. It's about him and his glory. So he says, throw me over. They won't do it. And they're brought to this reality, this face-to-face with this reality that they are not going to have any other choice. And so just before they do, these sailors, in verse 14, therefore, they call out, to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. You see, they started the night, they started the storm crying out to their gods, little g gods. They started out by crying out to these false, impotent, powerless, uh, false gods, gods of their own creation. And now in the midst of the storm, they're brought face to face that there is only one God who can make a difference. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah, the Lord They call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay on us not innocent blood. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You hear what that prayer is? It's a call for mercy. Keep us from your judgment. Keep us from 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 dealing with the consequences of this situation. Keep us, God, from having to carry the responsibility of what is about to happen. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from raging. Now, I don't know what that would do in your mind and in your heart. I don't know if if you were on the boat and it's about to capsize. I mean, it is about to give way. I don't know what happens in your heart and mind, but I'm telling you, I think... I'd be stunned. I think, I, I, I believe, I, I think, I can't say for sure. I've, I've never physically been here in that place. But, but, but I think I'd be just like these men, these sailors. In verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. They worshipped God for the very first time 
in their life for the very first time, in their understanding from the very, for the very first time, they intentionally looked at the Creator God and said, you are it. It's mind-boggling. And how did they get there? By this pouting prophet who had to have his own way. Jonah, he doesn't get to enjoy this, but he is certainly passively and purposefully used for God's glory. So what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about this God that that is showing and revealing himself? I think there's a number of things that we could continue to point out, but but I've said it over and over, and I've referred to it already. It's his glory. God, glory is intrinsically part of God. God is glorified in all things simply because He is glorious. I, I, don't, I know that sounds really simple and, and, and shallow because it's just really a small phrase, but it is profound when you begin to think about it. See, because the truth is, is that there is nothing In this world, there is nothing in all of the heavens that that stretch beyond our eyes and our imaginations. There is nothing in our power or in our control. There is nothing that we can do to undermine or override. There is nothing that we can do to diminish or dim the glory of God because it intrinsically belongs to Him because He is glorious through and through. He is full of glory. He is just, just, just drenched and just overflowing with glory. What does that mean? That's a okay. Well, what does that mean? I gave you this definition a couple of weeks ago as we started this, and I told you that we would see His glory. This this quote from Jonathan Edwards: "Glory is the outshining of the internal excellence." You see, glory is the revelation of all that God is, and it's the way that we experience Him. It's the way that we perceive Him. It's the way that that His being the uncaused cause, the Creator of all things, the One who said, let there be light when there was nothing and light shone. He's the One who said, took and brought out of nothing, He brought everything into existence. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. There was nothing in His hand and suddenly there was something there. You see, that's the God who created. He's the God who is always everywhere at all times. There's never a moment in time. There never has been nor ever will be a moment in time that He has not existed. There is never a place in this world where He has not been. There is nothing He cannot do. He is all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing. He doesn't even have to learn anything because He knows it already. He has the answers. He knows the beginning from the end and He knows how it's going to happen and He knows what's going to finish it and He knows how it's going to continue even when this world comes to a close. That's the God who is drenched and exuding His glory upon us. He is the God who doesn't just have power, but directs power. He is the God who is able. He is the God who can do what He says. He is the God who fulfills His promises. He is the God who loves you. 
He is the God who has lavished His grace upon you. He is the God who's withheld His judgment and given you His mercy. He is the God who is perfect in all His ways. He is the God who is in need of nothing. He is the God who has all things He he desires. He is the God who rules and reigns over all things in this universe. He is the God who is all these things at all times. He is that God. That's the God of glory. You see, the truth is is that He is always loving. He is always merciful. He is always righteous. He is always just. There is never a moment where He isn't all these things. And in that, we see His glory shining upon us. Coming and washing over us. You see, it's His glory that gives us light that we might see truth and that we might experience Him. It's like a light bulb in many ways. Like a light bulb in many ways in that it's, it's all of His attributes. It's all of His attributes being tied and, and, and presented in one fashion. You know, separate. Like the filament of a light bulb. It's it's interesting. It's a wavy little piece of metal. But its characteristics are pretty cool because once you run some power through it, it doesn't just glow red, it burns bright. <coughs> Throw that together with some electricity, which by itself is pretty fabulous and pretty amazing. Throw that inside of a glass globe that's frosted white. We get to enjoy the benefits. We get to see what we couldn't see. We get to know what's happening around us. We get to we get to know who's around us. See, this is the God. And all of his attributes, all of his all of his being, all of who he is, wrapped up into one idea. It is his glory. That's a God worth worshiping. That's a God worth revering and fearing. And see, here's the, here's, here's the thing about this. God will be glorified. He will be glorified because He's glorious. God will be glorified. He doesn't need our confession or our cooperation. I mean, look at Jonah. He wasn't confessing God and he wasn't cooperating with God, but God was glorified. And our sin, just like Jonah's sin, will in no way ever be able to diminish the glory of God because it shines beyond it, above it. There's no way. And even as we strive against his glory at times... The psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to stop it. God will be glorified because he is glorious. He's the source of all glory. So what does it reveal about us? What does it show about us? I mean, what do we learn about ourselves in in, in light of his glory? I think, I think like Jonah, sometimes we try to close our eyes to it. I think sometimes we, we, we use it less intentionally to just see His glory. 
and more for our own purposes. I, I think sometimes we look at his glory and we, 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 I think sometimes we approach him kind of like that light, that, that light, that there's this light switch and, 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 and when we need his glory, we want his glory to shine and when we don't feel like we need it, we, we just, we just going to go our own way and do our own thing. I mean, when it's dark, you know, when the storm is raging and, and life is tough and we, we sense that we're out of control and we have no certainty in our next moment and, and, and when we don't want to suffer anymore and, 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 and we, we feel all alone when we stand on a ship that's about to sink just like those sailors. That's when we call on God. And we want to flip the switch of His glory. Shine. Shine. Please shine in this moment. Come and shine in this moment. And Sunday morning. i got to show up on Sunday morning and make sure that I glorify Him and I make sure that, that His glory is known and it's Sunday morning. It's community group night. About to see a lot of Christian folks about to be asked Sunday school questions. Better have my Sunday school answers. We flip that switch. We try to turn His glory on. Don't we do that? I know I do that. I don't like to admit I do that. But don't we do it? Save His glory for when we need it. Here's here's the thing. God is going to be glorified because He's glorious. And, and, And God doesn't need us for his glory. He doesn't need us in order to be glorified. He desires us then to glorify him, to recognize his glory, to, to proclaim it, to, to walk into the warmth of it so that we can truly enjoy him. You see, I'm, I'm convinced that, that our struggles in life and our problems in life are, are not because God is too glorious, but because we are not willing to recognize the glory of God. That we're too busy trying to be satisfied with, with the things of the world or our own goals or our own desires. And, 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 and as I heard Paul Tripp, a, a pastor, just recently say it, it's not a sin problem as much as it's an awe of God problem. I don't revel in His glory. I don't fall in awe before Him. Because I've got something else that's taking my attention from Him. See, He desires us to glorify Him because that's what's best for us. That's what's good for us. He's jealous for your worship, not because He's narcissistic, but because He knows you were designed to know His glory fully, that you might enjoy Him fully. He's intrinsically glorious. And he wants you to worship him that you might know your best. So what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? What can we possibly do? Fear the Lord. I'm not talking about shaking in your boots kind of fear. I'm not talking about the kind of fear you have for a, for a spider. or I'm talking about a reverence. I'm talking about a, 
an understanding of what's there, kind of like the circular saw. I've, I, I've got a fear of circular saws. It's not like I look at it and quake in my boots. It's not like I won't pick it up and use it, I, I, but, but I understand it. I know what it can do. I know that if I don't watch what's underneath of it, that I've cut more than just the wood I want to cut. I know that, that if I don't hold it tight, that it could kick back and fly, away, fly out of my hands and hurt me or somebody else. I know that if I pull the guard back and I grab hold of a rotating blade, there's a problem going to happen. I know, and so I have this respect. I have this, this understanding. I have this, 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 this reverence for it. I, I hold it in a place because I know what it's about. But the difference between the fear of God and the fear of the saw is that the the saw is always under my control. The saw is always doing what I tell it to do. The saw only has power as I allow it to have power. God is powerful apart from me. God reigns apart from me. God doesn't need me. I need Him. He rules sovereignly. He says what's right and wrong. He has power to crush And he is fully justified if he decides to condemn. But this God decided to give mercy, to withhold judgment, and to say there's another way. See, this God who who knows enough to convict us for eternity decides instead to pardon us, to save us. This God who is with us at all times, in all places, when no one else can see what we're doing, when no one else can know what we're thinking, when no one else can comprehend what's at the depths of us, the Lord can. And He loves you anyway. He wants the best for you anyway. He longs for your good. He desires your best interest. Terror might be the right response for those in rebellion that have never known him and, and can't comprehend him. It's kind of like a flashlight in the in the midst of the darkness. I mean, th- that, that light first hits your eyes and it's hurtful and it's, it's un- incomprehensible and it, it, you don't know what to do with it. But spend some time in the light. Spend some time getting used to him. Spend some time getting to know his love. And as John wrote in his first epistle, it's the the perfect love casts out fear. You see, it's no longer you're you're then trying to preserve yourself. Well, I got to worship God, or He's going to crush me. I got to worship God, or He's going to send me a storm. Or I, I, it, it's it's worshiping God then, or 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 being fearful in reverence, being 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 uh, respectful and keeping Him in His right place, being motivated by Him. And I think that builds into and feeds into our second way that I think is best to respond, that we worship the Lord. Like those sailors. Those sailors, they they didn't hardly know anything about God. They didn't have doctorates. They They didn't have master's degrees. They didn't have credentials. They were just sailors on a boat who had had an experience with this God. And they did what all they knew to do. They worshipped. They directed their awe. They directed, they, they directed their ideas and their, their attention. They directed it all towards Him because they'd seen Him. 
And with what little understanding they had, they worshipped. I'm not talking about they got together and had a church service on Sunday morning. I'm talking about a lifestyle of worship. See, God will be glorified. We, we can't stop it. We can't diminish it, it. We can't keep it happening. But when we intentionally live in awe of him, that is the worship that I think we're called to. You see, you're passively going to be used for his glory. Whether you want to be or not, everybody is. He's glorified in condemnation. He's glorified in salvation. He's glorified in, in, in death and in life. He's glorified. He will always be glorified. But as his children, he gives us the blessing of getting to do it intentionally, purposefully. We call that worship. No longer a passive participant in his glorification, we get to actively pursue his glory. And so we worship. And I think finally, commune with the Lord. Walk with him. Don't hide from him. In redemption, in his plan of redemption, and the work that he's doing moving towards restoration when he makes all things new, God is putting back together what Adam and Eve destroyed in the garden. And their response to him was to hide. Jonah's response to him was to hide. Our response to him is oftentimes to hide. He wants for us to walk with him to walk in the cool of the garden, to walk in the evening, to walk in life with him. See, we have to be careful because we, we don't want to mistake our usefulness to God with our relationship with God. See, Jonah was still producing fruit, still being used for his glory, still being used for his plans and his purposes, but he wasn't enjoying the relationship anymore, was he? didn't look like it to me because at the end of it all he's like I just just throw me into the water kill me now so that you can be saved I want to tell you and I hope you'll hear this that is not what God wants with you he wants to walk with you he wants you to walk with him and enjoy his glory so let's just finish this off with a couple of questions just to bring some application, make it personal. <clears throat> What's at the center of your life? What are the motives that you're seeking to preserve yourself? What, what, what are you doing that preserves you? What are you doing? Why are you striving to preserve yourself? What, what, what is it that you're afraid of most? What is it that you love most? What is it that you're most in awe of? So I think at the heart of this, we, we, we're either going to be the sailors or we're going to be Jonah. Jonah had to displace his idols and had to be willing to give himself up. The sailors, they never knew this God, but got to meet him and got to worship him. And got, got an opportunity to put him first. Do the words that you speak in your life, do the words that you speak align with the actions of your day? 
Are you saying that you fear or revere or worship God? But people would be surprised to find that out. I mean, isn't it kind of shocking to see Jonah in this moment? I fear the Lord. Isn't that kind of shocking? Do they reveal your desire and motivation to see God shine? Or do they reveal your desire and motivation to shine? Let's pray.